Philadelphia newspaper had a headline, A Perfect Storm of Injustice. Philly man freed after 28 years as DA condemns decades of misconduct. It went on to read, after 28 years in prison for a triple murder he did not commit, Theophilus Wilson heard the words he'd been waiting for. Theophilus Wilson, you are free to go. Now he's 48 years old. He was a teenager when he was charged, accused of participating in the murders. The article said William's trial, Wilson's trial was infected by serious prosecutorial misconduct, Brady violations, a critical witness who supplied false testimony, and ineffective assistance of counsel. The district attorney's office wrote in a filing that called the case a perfect storm of injustice. To think that a 17-year-old man would have to serve 28 years for a crime that he did not commit. It's a horrible injustice. But the worst injustice that ever happened was when Jesus Christ, an innocent man, was condemned to die the most cruel death known to man. Jesus was accused of the religious leaders of blasphemy against the temple and insurrection against Rome. The charges were false. The witnesses were liars. But the accusers were determined to force a guilty verdict for the maximum sentence, death by crucifixion. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, had the responsibility of administering justice, but he failed miserably. Pilate was intimidated by the mob crowd. He put his own interest ahead of doing what was right, doing what was just. No one would deny he was in a tight spot, but he did what was politically correct, and as a result, an innocent man was condemned to die. So we're going to continue our series from the upper room to the empty tomb, and we're following through Matthew's account. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, Matthew 27. The verses are going to be on the screen if that's better for you. But as we do this, I want to encourage you for the next few moments to put aside all the things we've been concerned about this week, and let's go back in time and relive what happened with our Lord. And I want to challenge you to put yourself into Pilate's shoes. Because the decisions we make today are not unlike the decisions he had to make in that moment. Maybe not as dramatic, but they're definitely the same. And that we make choices that are politically correct. And may even crucify Jesus again. And even harm ourselves in the long run. So the goal for us is to learn from the study, to be motivated, to choose what is right, what is just. And live lives of integrity, even if it's not for our own personal advantage. So if you're following along on the outline, I want us to begin by looking at the dilemma. Pilate had an amazing, really a terrible dilemma that April morning. And really to appreciate the predicament, I think we need to go back and understand a little bit of the background. Josephus, a first century historian, shares a little bit about the perspective and what had been happening before this time. Pilate was an anti-Semitic Spaniard appointed to govern Judea in AD 26. He lasted only 10 years. Palestine was full of problems, and their stubborn resistance against Roman rule was just at a breaking point. There were constant revolutions. There was guerrilla warfare. There were threats. 
The situation is not unlike what we think of the Middle East today, just constant turmoil. And Pilate, if you put him into that situation, was not a very good governor, not very effective at all. That person would need to be very good at diplomacy. But that was not Pilate. Pilate was a tyrant. He was stubborn. One author called him a redneck who was often tactless and ruthless. He was hated by the Jews and really was not in good standing with Caesar either. He was in a hard spot. Caesar had received a number of complaints about his failure to keep the peace. For example, when Pilate first took office, he marched his army through Jerusalem with all the soldiers carrying the Roman banner. And on top of each of the pole was the bust of Caesar. And he required the people, the Jews, to bow down. Now, the previous governors were aware that the Jews did not want to bow down to a graven image, so they removed those busts from the flagpoles. Pilate wouldn't do that, and they wouldn't bow down. The protesters hounded him for five days until finally he agreed to meet with them in the amphitheater. He surrounded the Jews with soldiers and told them that they would be killed if they would not disperse. They bared their necks and said, go for it. He lost all credibility. And even he could not put those weaponless people to death. So the graven images were reluctantly removed. Later, Pilate decided that Jerusalem needed a new water supply. So he built a new aqueduct, but he needed to pay for it. So he took money from the temple treasury. Well, the Jews didn't like that, but he argued it was good for the city It was good for the temple. The Jews were so angry, they rioted in the streets. This time, Pilate sent his soldiers in and plain clothesmen, without anyone knowing their weapons, and on signal, hit the crowd. Many were killed. Even more were injured. Caesar removed, uh, heard all the protests. Pilate had to report to Rome to explain his methods. It was not a good time. Now imagine, this is the setting. Early one morning, an angry Jewish mob bring Jesus to his doorstep. He's in a hard spot. This man's a criminal. We want you to execute him. If you don't, you're no friend of Caesar. Basically saying, we've reported you to Caesar. If you don't do what we say, we're going to do it again. You're already on thin ice. You need to listen to us. They had Pilate over a barrel. His job or Jesus. Now, several factors that would make Pilate reluctant, if you were to follow along on the outline. First, there was the claim that Jesus said he was God. Verse 11, Matthew 27, Jesus admits he's king. Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. John's gospel, chapter 18, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate did not want the wrath of a God, if that was true. And Jesus was very impressive. Even Pilate couldn't help but notice. Look at verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now, Pilate had been in the presence of Caesar. He understood authority and dignity. And all that went with that, there was something impressive about Jesus. And Pilate saw it up close. He was greatly amazed, Matthew said. And then a second factor. Pilate was reluctant because of the counsel of his wife. The reading we had earlier, look at verse 19. 
Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today. No matter how powerful a man is, he will listen to his wife for good counsel. That's just the way it needs to be. I listen to the counsel of a lot of people, but I hold none higher than what my wife thinks. Just working through some of this this weekend. I was reading some of it to see as she was giving me her feedback. It helps. We understand that. One of my favorite cartoons from the Leadership Magazine, there was a preacher that was talking with his wife after worship, and he made this statement, maybe my sermons would be more effective if you would not say, huh, while I'm preaching. <laughs> we want the counsel of our wives. Pilate was told by his wife not to condemn Jesus. Here's something else to think about. And there's a principle that all of us have to live by. And if you're younger, you especially need to know this. Past mistakes limit future options. Past mistakes limit future options. Because of Pilate's earlier blunders, he's at a point where he could no longer negotiate with the Jews. He, he had lost that credibility. You know, sometimes we talk so much about God's forgiveness and so much grace that some may get the impression that if you sin it, you know, it doesn't matter. You confess the sin and, and you get a blank slate. And to some degree, that's true. But that does not mean that you are erased from all the consequences of your wrong choices and your sins. David lived with the earthly consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. The child died, even though he was praying fervently. David's own children rebelled against him. He lost his influence as king. Past mistakes limit your future options. God forgives sins, yes. And your slate is wiped clean, yes. But there's still sometimes consequences that we have to pay for in this life. The scars linger. You know, you goof off in college and you finally get focused and you're trying to get into grad school. But at that point, it's too late. Your GPA is not high enough. Or you choose to, to drink alcohol or take drugs and you know that, that your brain is going to be adversely affected by that. Or you may even become addicted. If you're promiscuous before marriage and you may tell yourself, but when I get married, I'm going to be trustworthy. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't. You may have difficulty proving that to the one you want to marry. There's a little phrase in the book of Jude, verse 24. I hope you've marked this in your Bibles. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To keep you from stumbling. See, the good, Jesus, the good news of Jesus is not just that it's an ambulance to, to, to come to your rescue when you're at the bottom of a cliff because you've fallen to take you to the hospital to get help. It's also a fence at the top to keep you from falling. I bet if we asked the father of the prodigal son, what is better than that prodigal son returning home? It would be if he ever, never chose to leave. Maybe that's why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember also you're your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Before they come. Pilate had made mistakes earlier in his reign, and now he's in a hard spot. So let's look at the, del the, the deliberation. Because he took a long time deliberating. And if you, if you put Matthew's account alongside Luke's and John's, you see several attempts where Pilate was trying to let Jesus off the hook. 
First, he tried dismissal, Luke 23, 4 and 5. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Case closed. Game's over. Let's all go home. Verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And then he tried referral, Luke 23, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, you know what that's like. You, you live in the city, and you got a problem, and so you call the city government, and go, oh, yeah, that's a problem, but that's not in our jurisdiction. You need to call the county. And so you call the county, and they say, well, yeah, that is a problem, but that's not in our jurisdiction. You need to call the city. And you're like, somebody help me here. That's kind of what's going on here. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Now, this Herod is the same tyrant who had just cut the head off of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. But Herod had heard about all the miracles of Jesus. And so you sense that he enjoyed getting this audience with him, wanted him to put on a show, Luke 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some signs done by him. But Jesus refused to play along. He wouldn't even speak a word to Herod. And that made Herod so mad. Look at verse 11. Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him with splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment Pilate having breakfast with his wife, thinking to himself, relieved that Jesus was no longer his responsibility. That's Herod's problem. So happy as he's sitting there with his wife that he had heeded his wife's counsel. And now they're going to have peace at home. Relieved he was off the hook. That he politically had survived that landmine. That he was going to be okay. And he and his wife look out the window and here comes that mob even angrier. Bringing Jesus back to him. So then he had another diversion. Amnesty. Look at Matthew 27, verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor had a custom of release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had the notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy they had delivered him up. To squelch the Jews, the Romans had this custom of releasing one Jewish prisoner if... There had been no insurrection or rebellion, no uprising. So Pilate had the ingenious idea, surely this would work. This horrible criminal, they wouldn't let him go. They would choose Jesus instead. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Notice the crowd had to be persuaded. The governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And then he tried to reason with them. Verse 23. But why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And then he tried one more tactic, appeasement. Verse 26 says, then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus. Now, John's gospel reads that Pilate might have been thinking that the scourging would have been enough. They just saw the bloody body of Jesus. John 19, 1 says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And we can read the word flogged or, or scourging, and we understand what that means. But let me share what Dr. William Edwards of the Mayo Clinic described in the AMA Journal. Quite graphic, but I want us to fully understand what happens The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers or by one alternating positions. As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, The iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well determine how long the victim would survive on the cross. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and possibly critical. One writer suggested the the length or the severity of the scourging would be determined by how quickly the criminal confessed. If he confessed quickly, it wouldn't last as long. Jesus never confessed. And the evidence... He got the worst scourging possible. Charlie Faust was preaching in inner city New York, and he was talking about this text. And there was a woman in the crowd who wasn't a church-going person. She didn't know the story of Jesus, especially this detail. And when he got to the point of talking about the scourging, him being whipped, it was all she could do. She was so overtaken, and she said, those expletive. And then she was embarrassed Folks, if you and I were hearing it for the first time, we would have the same reaction. They beat our Lord nearly to death. Matthew 27, verse 23, 22 and 23, Pilate said to them, And what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. He said, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate had tried everything he could think of to keep this from happening. Even the sight of this bloody man standing before them was not enough. Now, Pilate had enough information to make the right decision. He had the statement of Jesus. Jesus said, I am innocent. He had the corruption of Jesus' accusers. He knew it was out of envy. He had received the counsel from his wife. He had the the obvious comparison with Barabbas. He had enough information to know all of this was a huge injustice. It was time to decide, but Pilate refused to make a decision. Now, there are many things that you miss out in life when you refuse to make a decision. Lee Iacocca, some of you remember the name, a visionary automaker, well-respected in business. He made this statement, a good leader ought to be able to make a decision when 95% of the information is in. If you wait until you have 100% of the information, it's too late. But there are some people who cannot make a decision until they have 
They're absolutely sure. They put it off. They deliberate. They procrastinate. They play it safe. They agonize. They cannot decide. Charles Swindoll describes these people. He said their favorite color is plaid. (laughs) Failure to make a decision can be costly. There comes a moment when you must decide. I thought about that. How many delay in making a decision to give their life and follow Jesus? I'm going to do it someday. I'm going to do it when all my questions get answered, when I no longer have doubts. Then I'll decide. But if you wait to then, then there's no faith needed. There are some who have errors in their lives they've not straightened out yet, so they'll rationalize, I'm going to get through this, or I'm going to clean my mess up. I'm not, not ready yet. Then I'll decide. But if they try to clean their mess up, if they wait, then there's no power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Or maybe there's certain sins they're not ready to give up. They still want to do those things. And that maybe they're hoping that when their life is spent at the last moment, then they'll decide. So they attend church. They know all the songs. They believe in Jesus, but they've not made the decision to put him first. And the truth is, they're not going to make that commitment. But failing to make a decision for Jesus is making a decision. You're saying no to him. Failing to decide is to decide. And that's what's happened with Pilate here. He asked aloud in verse 22, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Now I want you to notice here, Pilate tried to be neutral. Look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Mark's gospel says outright that Pilate was wishing to satisfy the crowd. Verse 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. And then notice Pilate made a selfish decision. He yielded to the pressure. He did what was politically correct, tried to save his own neck, and he permits Jesus to be put to death. And the result is the most unjust verdict in the history of our world. Not just a good man, not just an innocent man, a perfect man was condemned to die. Pilate knew in not deciding, he had decided. He had made a choice. He chose selfishly. All the water in the world would not wash his guilt away. According to tradition, just a few years after this, Pilate was relieved of his duties Banished to Gaul for his incompetence, and he died by suicide. Pilate saved his job, but only temporarily. But he lost his self-respect, his peace of mind, as far as we know from Scripture, lost his soul. Mark 8, 36, Jesus asked, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But it's not just the politician. We can all be guilty of washing our hands, trying to pass on the blame. Maybe not as dramatically as Pilate, but we can wash our hands to keep our job. So we lie here or there, go along with what we shouldn't so we can keep our job, make it work. We wash our hands to our financial advantage. You ever sold something and didn't tell the whole truth about the condition, hoping to get more money out of it? We wash our hands of Jesus to achieve success. 
Yeah, I cheat on a test because everybody cheats. And if I don't cheat, then there's no way I can compete. It is the most beautiful thing to see a Christian do the right thing regardless. And especially if there is some type of personal expense. I read about a young woman who was living with her fiance, and that was not uncommon for her and her circle of friends, but some other friends invited her to church. So she went with them, and she learned about Jesus Christ, and she was convicted to become a follower of Jesus. And in doing that, she became aware and convicted about her living arrangement. So she told her fiance that she would be moving out, and they would be celibate until they got married. At first, he was angry. Many of her friends thought she was fanatical. But then her fiancé came back around because he remembered early in his life he had made a, a decision to follow Jesus. So he went along with it and agreed, and they got married as devoted Christians. And to be fair, not all stories have that kind of happily ever after ending. It's not easy to decide to follow Christ. It's much easier to wash your hands and say, not me, not me. But any sacrifice you make for the sake of Christ, Jesus said he will restore a hundred times. Bill McCartney wrote an autobiography, From Ashes to Glory. He was the University of Colorado football coach. His team was number one in the nation in 1989. But that year of glory, professionally on the field, was also a year of incredible heartache for him personally. His daughter, Christy, announced to her parents that she was pregnant by the starting quarterback, Sal Anessi. He wanted her to get an abortion. When she refused, he rejected her and walked out. But Bill McCartney stood beside his daughter when she decided to keep the baby. But on March 29, 1989, it was discovered the dad of the baby, Sal Anessi, had cancer, and he was dying. In July, Bill McCartney went to the hospital room and led Sal Anessi to faith in Christ. Bill Curry, then the coach at the University of Kentucky, said this, I've got a daughter the same age as Christy McCartney, and ironically, her name is Christy. When I think about what Bill McCartney had to endure and then how he led Sal Anessi to Christ, I am overwhelmed. This is, a, a, this is as far as it goes, as good as it gets. When he faced the ultimate test, not as a coach, but as a father, to the daughter he loves more than life itself, he responded by giving the ultimate gift. He also took a lot of heat because he made a stand against abortion. The university president called him out and said he represented the school and he had no right to make that stand. But Bill McCartney refused to compromise his moral standards, even if it cost him his job. Just when they thought the dust was settling, a tabloid, the Denver Westward, carried the headline, that sinning season, CU coach Bill McCartney keeps the faith and gets a grandson fathered by the star quarterback. And then there's a doctored-up picture of the coach with a crown of thorns on his head 
nail scars in his hands, and under it were the words, the mortification of Beal. The right thing is not necessarily the politically correct thing. When you do the godly thing, there may be opposition. There may be ridicule. You may lose your, your job. When you do the right thing, you may have to wear a crown of thorns. You may lose the relationship. You may lose money. People may not understand. But as Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that what he cannot lose. Jesus endured outrageous injustice so that one day when you stand before the Lord, you can be seen as forgiven. He wants you to be treated fairly and have salvation through him. You can be forgiven. That is why Jesus died for you. This morning, if you want to follow Jesus and make that decision, we always have the water ready so you can be baptized. We'd love to hear you confess you believe Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll help and support you as you give your life to him. As the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and guide you for the rest of your days. Or if we can just pray for you, whatever you're going through, that you can do the right thing. Would you come as we stand and sing to encourage?